When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not necessarily like what we see today, which are these big rallies and massive crowds. People really disengage in the off-season. Between elections, when the real work that affects our lives gets done, people don't have a way to answer the simple question, is the person just elected whether or not I voted for them? Are they actually representing me? It was so frustrating that people didn't have an easy way to know that. I remember looking at a spreadsheet and just thinking, someday the data is going to get there and there is going to be an easy way to track what is happening between elections. It was something where I really felt this needs to exist in order for for our democracy to work how it's supposed to work, for it to be truly representative. I'm Maria Yuen, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Maria Ewan, founder of Issue Voter platform that makes civic engagement accessible with alerts before Congress votes, and it gives individuals a voice by sending opinions directly to their rep. It also keeps Congress accountable by providing a personalized scorecard of how your representative voted. Maria and I have known each other for, I think, a few years now. I ran into her through my General Assembly network, and she's always been a really fascinating, really passionate individual. And it was such a great experience to have her on today, especially because we are about to head into inauguration. So we were able to talk about a lot of things surrounding civic engagement. Yeah. I mean, something I really loved about this conversation is we're all busy and it's so easy to not be civically engaged. I'm just as guilty as probably all of us. And then there are moments in time where we choose to be engaged, but so much of the change happens in the margins. And I think that's I mean, I literally in the middle of the podcast, I was like, okay, I didn't prepare enough. Maybe I should actually sign up for this thing. And I did. I was like, oh my, I hate to advertise. And they're not a sponsor or anything, but it's like, it's so easy. Go to Issue Voter, like just sign up for an account, tell them where you live. And it's literally just going to push alerts to all the stuff that's happening that you actually might care about. And it makes it super easy to get your voice heard to Congress. It's not just about making a call or sending a form email. It's about literally choosing and I'm geeking out already. Like I'm such a like political Western. I love seeing the side of you, Remen, because you've always been really civically and politically engaged. And so whenever topics like this come up and I love watching you light up around it. Something Maria said that really stuck with me is about her hope for this new year. We all got a lot more engaged this year, but it's actually the off season we need to pay attention to as well. It's the the down ballot stuff that matters just as much. And it's it's so much harder to get engaged with that stuff. We all just care about the presidential election. And now we're done. Our job is done. No, our job's not done. But 
we have real jobs we have to get back to. And so what, what I like about Issue Voter is it makes busy people like us, it saves the time and energy, but allows you to kind of jump in quickly, engage where you need to. They kind of do the research for you on both sides of the argument, so you can choose where you want to be on it. It's kind of like reading like the League of Women Voters thing right before you go to vote, but there's a lot of votes happening all the time that you should be paying attention to. So anyway, it's just, and it's something else I've, I've really been thinking a lot about, Sharon, is people like us go get professional careers. We go become doctors, lawyers, we run agencies. Very rarely do you see people veering off the path like Maria, like Andrew Yang, et cetera, to, to make bigger changes beyond that cool startup or being a lawyer or whatever it is. Yeah. It's inspiring. And it's inspiring that she's using this platform to not just inform people, but to really make change through that information and the transparency and that education. So we think you're going to really enjoy our conversation with our friend Maria. Thank you for joining us, Maria. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you. Yeah, really nice to meet you. So Maria, you're doing amazing things now, and we will definitely hear about that. But one thing I'm really curious about is who you were before all of us started, before Issue Voter, before being an adult, before moving from New York to Austin. Is there a childhood memory that stands out in your mind that you could share with us? Definitely. I mean, there's lots of childhood memories that stand out, but one that I think is really relevant to what I'm doing today is that I still remember mock voting in second grade. So I remember that the teacher passed out these little slips of paper. We wrote someone's name on the paper, folded it up, put it into a homemade ballot box. She tallied all of our classroom votes and she showed us a map of the United States. And it was something that I don't remember all of the details from it, but even that simple act of participation in I think I was probably seven years old, really stayed with me. And it was, I think, the first time I really got to feel what it was like to participate in civic engagement and democracy. And I had grown up with parents who always voted. But as a young person, when you are not old enough to vote, you don't necessarily know what that really means or what that's like. It's actually kind of funny because I don't actually remember the candidates, which I think is that's funny. It's, it was the presidential election year, though. I feel like, I don't know, I'd almost have to go look it up and look at my age and figure out what, which election that was. Oh, so you were voting for, it wasn't like you were voting for a class president. You were voting for the, the actual president. Oh, presidential right. Candidate. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, so my daughter's daycare, they did a vote and she's like four and she comes home saying, daddy, we're voting for class president. And we're like, oh my God, the popular <laughs> contest starts now. And so there's all this talk. She's so hyped for a week. She's talking about it. And then on Friday, you know, at dinner, I was like, so what happened? And she's like, oh. Well, we voted for if bunny or elephant was going to be our class president. <laughs> and there were people who were like, and I was like, that's so interesting. But like, they it could have been even more like, political if it was donkey and elephant. I know. I that's thought true. about that. And, and to be clear, bunny won. But then the following week, after they did the whole exercise during election week in America, she was asking about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And I was like, oh, man, I kind of wanted to avoid. I'm so glad you're young and you don't have to observe what's going on. But, you know, when I had explained it and we let her watch, we did like three election episodes where I gushed about her watching Kamala Harris, like give her acceptance speech. But now she's asking every, this is going to sound terrible. <laughs> every time she sees like an ad from like anything in the, in the mail and it's like an old white guy. She's like, is that Joe Biden? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but she recognizes Kamala Harris. Anyway. Oh, that's really cool. So what did you want to do when you were growing up? I don't think I had a clear career path that I knew from a very young age that I wanted to do. 
I do remember once having a conversation with my mom and asking her if it was okay that I was a garbage collector. And wow. she said, yes. <laughs> she said, if that's what you want to do, yes. And I said, okay. <laughs> I, was, I don't remember how that idea came into my mind, but I do remember having that conversation. And I remember, I mean, it was actually really great because it made me feel like, oh, I can do whatever I want to do. And then I, I remember there was a time when I, well, sometimes my mom would tell me that I should be a lawyer because I was good at arguing because when I would argue with my parents. <laughs> so she would just say, oh, you should be a lawyer. But I think that I had a tr pretty traditional professional career path. I've always been a pretty competitive person. And I think I chose my major in college by process of elimination, meaning I wanted to do something that was, it, it, it always appealed for to me to do something that I guess was practical. So in other words, not necessarily a liberal arts major. And then out of the so-called practical careers, I eliminated engineering. I felt like I, my dad's an engineer and I felt like I didn't want to do that. I don't like to see blood. So I eliminated being a doctor. I don't really like memorizing things. You're running out of Asian jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's how she landed on garbage collector. <laughs> exactly. I eliminated lawyer because I don't like memorizing things. And so then there was the business school. So I majored in finance and I've always been a competitive person and like an achiever. So I, when I was in school in undergrad, and if you were a finance major, the competitive thing to do was investment banking in New York City. So that's what I did. Mm -hmm. So you wow. were on Wall Street. I, I have to ask, you're clearly not an investment banker now. Like, I'm and, not. <laughs> I'm more curious at what point being an investment banker, did you realize, I don't want to be an investor? And why? Like, because I mean, that's, that's the path. That's the journey. You made it. You did the thing. Mom and dad are proud. <laughs> I think, well, it's 2020 hindsight. And I have realized in hindsight that civic participation and our civic duty and the importance of democracy is something that has been a thread throughout my life. So, so I mentioned the mock voting in second grade, growing up with parents who always voted. I don't know. I think someday I want to write a book about how kids are smarter than you think they are. So even like your four-year-old, for example, she'll probably have st stories she can tell you when she's older about things she knew and you didn't realize she knew. But I, I would say that even when I was young, I had this realization of like, oh, my dad's family fled from communist China and that there are all these countries out there that don't even have the ability to vote. If you asked me when I was a kid, I, I think I would have told you that voting was required. I don't think I knew it was optional. And then around high school, I realized that it's almost, you know, depending on the election, like half of the people that have the ability to vote don't vote. And I found that so shocking. And then in college, I participated in a student group that introduced and passed a piece of legislation. I also interned for a rep. And in that internship experience, I saw that every constituent contact is tracked, yet really so few people actually reach out. And... So I think it was all these experiences combined kind of led me to where I am today. But I think it's really, uh, so the light bulb moment for Issue Voter happened in Iowa. I took a leave of absence from my job uh, in investment What banking. year is this? This was in 2006. Okay. And I was working okay. at JP Morgan. I was an analyst. I was a junior person. And so there was a program that I had heard about in college. And I felt like if I don't do this program, I'm going to regret it. So I applied. I got in. And... I asked for a leave of absence and I really actually, honestly, to, to JP Morgan's credit I, and their culture, they let me have it. So, so I was able to take a leave of ab absence, uh, work on a campaign in Iowa. And in that experience, it was just, I mean, first of all, it was a really cool experience as someone who had never lived in a swing state before. I had lived in mostly California, Texas, and New York. 
And being in Mm -hmm. Iowa in 2006, ahead of the 08 presidential election, every single candidate who was even thinking about running for president at that time was in Iowa. And And just being on the ground and seeing how much attention people in Iowa are paying to their elected officials, how engaged people are, you know, when they go to events in Iowa, it's not, it's not necessarily like what we see today, which are these big rallies in stadiums and, you know, massive crowds. In Iowa, people will go to a coffee shop and have conversations with someone who may be the next president. And so it's very, it feels very personal. From that experience, what I saw, though, was that even in Iowa, where people are so engaged during elections, just like everywhere else, people really disengage in the off-season. Between elections, when the real work that affects our lives gets done, people don't have a way to answer the simple question, which is, is my representative who I just elected or is the person who was just elected, whether or not I voted for them, are they actually representing me? And I really saw that it was so frustrating that people didn't have an easy way to know that, including myself, even. So... I remember I had like a very distinct memory of like sitting in front of a laptop, looking at a spreadsheet and just thinking, I guess my mind must have been drifting because I was thinking someday the data is going to get there and there is going to be an easy way to track what is happening between elections. Like that was the nugget of what led to Issue Voter. It wasn't like I had the whole plan. It wasn't like I was just upset with my banking job and wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like it was something where I really felt like this needs to exist in order for our democracy to work how it's supposed to work and for it to be truly representative. And so after this leave of absence thing, I went back to JP Morgan. I didn't immediately start Issue Voter. I watched the civic tech space for almost 10 years and really felt like I didn't see anything out there that was solving this problem. And I think like many people who are founders, you just get to the point where you feel like you can't not do it. Yeah, something I heard from a um, pretty successful guy who's had some massive exits and he said he looks at two types of founders when he's evaluating if he wants to invest in them. The people who do it because it's kind of cool and the ones who can't live in a world where that thing doesn't exist. And it sounds like you're kind of describing that that latter scenario. Yeah, I definitely feel that way. There's a power in technology now, which is that we really do have the ability to hear from the majority of Americans and what people really want. And even from the staffer's side and the constituent communication side, it, it benefits the staff and the members of Congress as well, because there's only so many hours in the day. Like, I think a lot of us might have heard these calls to action from advocacy groups, which is like, call your rep. And the reason they want you to call is because it's disruptive. But, and, and you know, and that serves a purpose. That's a form of organizing. But in my opinion, I think that things can be so much more productive if we really are able to make more people's voices heard. I mean, there's never going to be enough hours in the day for a staffer to answer even 10% of their constituency's phone calls. Then why do we do it? Because it's disruptive. It disrupts their day and it makes a lot of noise. Mm. Well, that's why we're told to do it. I, I guess I should that's, I should <laughs> on that. That's why we're told to do it. Why individual Americans do it, I think, is to make their voices heard and because they want to make a difference and they care deeply about these issues. So that's why people do yeah. it. But specifically why we're told to use phone calls as the channel is because it's disruptive. How are you different today than you were when you were either in second grade doing that mock vote or wanting to be a garbage collector? What's different about (laughs) you today than you were back then? Hmm. I think that I have collected more pet peeves and will someday write a book about them. (laughs) But other than that, I think I'm actually a lot the same person. I'm not someone who, um, like you can ask friends of mine in, you know, kindergarten. I don't think I'm someone that has actually 
changed that much over my life, if that makes sense. I know some people, you know, they go through these massive changes where people are like, oh, like, you're so different than you were five years ago. I feel like I've had similar personality my whole life, similar outlook on life, similar way that I interact with people. So I don't think like who I am has really changed that much. I definitely think I've learned a lot. So in terms of skills and learning, I think I've grown. And I hope that's a lifelong thing. I think everyone is always learning. I guess. So you talked about your pet peeves. And I I totally feel you. And I think as I get older, and I've done more things, I've learned what I don't want to do. I've learned what I do want to do. The itches I've chosen to scratch are the ones that I want to occupy my day with. Does that make sense? Right? So it's So I guess, is some of those pet peeves you've learned along the way, did some of those kind of lead you to to issue better and kind of civic advocacy? I don't think so. I I, I mean, my pet peeves are more about like problems in the world. (laughs) Well, I guess in a way, yes, problems in the world led me to issue voter. But I mean, I'll give you an example. One of my pet peeves is petitions. So, so some of my pet peeves definitely inform how issue voter works. And then some of my pet peeves are just from learning more about how different systems exist. So, you know, I have like some pet peeves with philanthropy, (laughs) things like that, which I wasn't Mm. in that field before. So I didn't know about those things. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, the reason I want to ask is because like, I want to come back to the calls and being disruptive. And I'm actually more willing to go knock on doors than I am to make phone calls, if that makes sense, from a political and a civic engagement thing. Like I would rather get the people in my community and talk to them versus calling the rep because you say it's disruptive, but no, this is my own kind of jaded political cynicism. Yeah, but the staffer is going to pick it up and check a tick box that 10 people are calling about this. Like the staffer is doing it. I'm not talking to the rep. I'm not going to get to talk to the rep. And maybe I'll talk to like the most junior staffer because I watch enough West Wing to know how that works. And so I guess my pet peeve in the system is I don't know if the system of advocacy and putting pressure on elected representatives really works. I think the only pressure exists in the field. How do you convince someone to engage with your platform if they're not jaded, but they want to do stuff, but they don't believe in the systems that exist out there. I think so much of the problem is people don't know where to get started. Yeah. I mean, that is something that many organizations I think are also working on. That's like a cultural messaging thing. I actually just joined a group called Gen Roundtable, which is working to highlight three issues that young people care about that is bipartisan. And so the three issues that this group has chosen to highlight include democratic institutions, climate change, and economic mobility and are approaching it in a nonpartisan way with by writing these statement papers that are going to be coming out soon and then using that as kind of a jumping point to start um, having meetings with members of Congress. So I think that even young people are recognizing that the mistrust in our institutions is a big problem because there's the same messaging in our country around bureaucracy being a bad thing and individual individualism. And I think all of these things kind of can butt up against the idea of how democracy works, which is it does take time and it's a big system, but it doesn't mean necessarily that it's not working. You know, it's so funny. I think a learning of the last four years, we're going to air this episode right around inauguration, but the learning of the last four years is, and even Obama said something about this, like trust in the system. The bureaucracy, if anything, even there was a lot of abuse in the system for the last four years, is kind of what saved us from some really bad things from happening. You can't just wave a magic wand and make things happen. Yeah, I think definitely checks and balances are important. But we have seen, I mean, not just from the most recent presidency, but we have seen over the years that the power of the executive branch is increasing. And unfortunately, I think also politics has become more polarized. And so 
we were writing this problem brief about why democracy reform is needed. So even in recent years, the power of the executive branch has grown. And unfortunately, when the president does things like vetoes and executive orders, it creates this very winner-take-all type of outcome. And it's also had these ties to politics, which has become more and more polarized. But then democracy is not supposed to be a winner-take-all game. It is supposed to be something where there is time for debate, deliberation, consensus. And something I've seen happen over time, which I find still confusing. I, I mean, I don't totally understand it. But I remember when I was younger, politicians would talk about compromise, and that would be seen as a good thing. And compromise in order to get to a solution that benefits the most people and that people can agree on. But nowadays, there are situations where I feel like politicians talk about compromised, and then people attack them for it. So, I mean, I guess that's a personal opinion, but that is something that I think has really harmed our ability to make policy change that the majority of Americans actually support. Why do you think... We, we touched on some of the apathy out there and in a me- multiple other conversations with people of much older generations, they kind of see what's been happening in the streets in the last year and they're almost rejuvenated because they thought we were kind of moving into this kind of apathetic phase where, and I still believe it exists, where you'd rather just stay home, watch Netflix and not engage. Mm-hmm. But something's changed in the last year. I think we all kind of saw it. Why do you think things are changing? Why do you think people are waking up? Why do you think people are finally engaging with platforms like yours and others to kind of want to make their voice more heard? Well, I think it's one of these things where there's many different reasons. But the first thing that came to mind was I would definitely credit to your point earlier about organizing on the ground and door knocking. I think that's a big part of it, actually, is that organizations who are doing that on the ground work have grown stronger over time and are better at organizing. So I think the on the ground organizing is definitely a piece of it and really connecting with people in their communities to activate more people. I also think that maybe there's just this point of like, you have to reach a certain boiling point. When things are simmering, you have maybe 10% of the population that's active. But then when things reach this boiling point, you get to this point where people like can't just sit back, right? And do nothing. So I think that's probably part of it as well. But what I will say is a lot of the problems that we've been talking about in 2020 are not new problems. So for example, this year, when Issue Voter sent out alerts that related to demilitarizing the police, and in order for police departments to, to receive federal funding, they would have to implement de-escalation techniques right. and training. Things we've been talking about you since know. Ferguson, but it sounds like people woke up to it finally. These were bills yeah. that were not just introduced this year. Yeah. Right. There were members yeah. of Congress who had introduced this legislation, who had reintroduced this legislation. It wasn't new to them. And so I think a lot of times, too, we just like to have a scapegoat. And sometimes politicians are that scapegoat. But I think that we also can remember that like, they are people, too. And if we had a better idea of some of the things they were already working on, <laughs> and there was more ability to support those things even earlier on. It's almost an awareness yeah. play and knowing what they're working on. I think organizations like yours, you have to grease the wheels a little bit. How do you make it easier? How do you make the UX better, right? Of making it easy to find the thing you want to talk about, find the easy way to share it or to get behind something. So I guess I want to ask the question a different way. And I've been thinking a lot about this in the last year because I've been complicit. Like you at your JP Morgan job, it's like I knew there was something. And this is literally kind of what led to us wanting to do this podcast, but I didn't know what to do or I didn't feel like I could. So I, it's about Asians. Very bluntly. We're, all three of us are Asians. We've had the jobs. We've had the safe careers. We did the thing that was kind of expected. And we were socially woke. I watched The West Wing. I voted for Obama. But 
why do you think Asians, East Asians, South Asians, the quote unquote model minorities, all of a sudden are becoming more civically engaged? I have no, no. idea. Why are they? <laughs> I, honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> I can't answer that. I will say though, that one thing that happens, I definitely try to separate when I think about politics, there's like the politics side and there's the policy side. And one of the problems I think nowadays is that they get intertwined too much. But on the politics side, which is elections and campaigns and the parties, I will say that there's definitely has not historically been as much focus, money, time, etc. that goes into activating voters who have never voted and, hmm. and also potentially activating Asian voters. And so if people aren't being brought into democratic participation from the electoral side, then I think that they have to be brought in through an issue that they care about. And so I think that is one way to really engage people who have historically been disengaged is everyone cares about something, whether they're political or not. And then helping people understand that it's actually policy change that can create the large scale, more systemic, lasting change that we want to see in the world. I mean, it's great. All the nonprofits out there, I mean, Ishii Voters is a nonprofit and the work that they're doing is so needed. But like, let's all admit that a lot of these nonprofits wouldn't have to exist in the first place if there were certain policy changes. I wonder if some of it is just, it's what you're saying, Maria, but it's also, it's it's just almost like there's no, oh, sorry, like my head's going in a million places, but as someone who's a child of immigrants, and like immigrants and like second generation immigrants. I I know as I was growing up, my family was not civically involved, right? So they came to this country, they enjoyed the liberties and the freedoms and the structures of this country, but they never really saw themselves in a role where they could make change at that level. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's right. You're, right. you're here, you're just trying to survive so your mm-hmm. kids can go to college and blah, blah, blah. But exactly. now the three of us have all the luxuries in the world and the Amazon Prime subscriptions and the Roombas and whatever. It, it, it's a self-actualization exercise. Mm-hmm. That's a I good think. point. It's yeah. true. Yeah, it's that's true. a good point. And, and there, were, there were small ways that, at least in my own family, civic duties were being fulfilled, right? And I say civic very broadly. So broadly. So my mother was the head of the PTA. My dad was the head of a couple of neighborhood associations. But to be anything more than that, like a city council person or governor, that was just never part of our DNA. And it's honestly, it wasn't until probably more recent years where people of color started to show up in office, right? Like even for myself, when Andrew Yang was running in a pretty big way, I, I found myself much more emotionally engaged with the election than I ever had before. And so I do, as, as much as it's about policy, I think it's also about people and it's about mm-hmm. seeing people like yourself in those roles and understanding that those people are representing not just race and, or gender, but they're, they're, they're representing you for your needs, for your beliefs, for, your, for policies that are going to make a difference for you on a day-to-day basis. There's a Thomas Jefferson quote, uh, God, I will butcher it, but it's something about we have to be doctors and engineers so our children can be like liberal arts majors or something. But it's not, and no disrespect to my friends who got liberal arts degrees because their parents left them. But it's, I, I do think it's a generational thing. It's like you, you can only control so many things and 
choose to change the world and be civically engaged. That's true. There are people who make less money who are more civically engaged than me. I, I don't know. I just, I think about that a lot, but like I used to really, this is going to sound terrible. I used to dog on liberal arts degrees. Oh, my daughter will never be an English major. She's not allowed. Ha ha ha. But in reality, I understand why as an engineering major, it was important that I had to have those liberal arts credits. Because if you just, I mean, you look at everything happening in the Silicon Valley, if you just focus on optimizing a system without caring about the context in which the system is built, Mm-hmm. you're going to build a really bad system. Hmm. Anyway. I don't yeah, know that's a really, well, I would just say, yeah, I just agree with everything you just said. So both of you, those are really good points. In the in the democracy space or kind of the civic engagement space, I would say that issue voter, I kind of put us in the healthy democracy movement. And there are two ways that people sometimes talk about it. So there's reflective democracy, which is what Sharon was talking about when you are actually seeing more women in Congress, more people of color in Congress. And then there's representative democracy, which is when they're actually representing the desires and wants of their constituency. And even representative democracy to some is a revolutionary idea. Some people don't believe that there's sort of like the trustee approach, like, are you electing someone and they're like a trustee and you just put their tr- your trust in them? They're not necessarily have to pull you on your opinions. I don't know. But to your point about everyone being busy and this hierarchy of needs, everyone's busy. But I do think that if we can make it easier for people to make their voices heard, then people should do that. <laughs> I think that it is a matter of priorities. I'm one of these people that I would tell people, like, don't tell me you're not too, you're too busy to do something. Just tell me it's not your priority. Yeah. But those are two very different things, right? To some extent, there's no such thing as being too busy to do something. You're, it's just not your priority if you're not doing it. Like if someone, it's, yeah, says it's your choice. Too, right? if someone says they're too busy to vote, I would say, no, that's not true. <laughs> you, it's just not your priority. But it's also, it comes back to systems. I, I, I actually agree with that. But then, because it's something at my last startup, the president of the organization sent an email to everyone. This is around the midterm elections. And he was like, Everyone is free to take the morning off to go vote. Figure, Make a plan, vote. You can get out of meetings this day. And the company's making the choices versus the system making the choice of voting on the weekend, voting right. by mail, voting should right. be a holiday, all of those things. Like if you make it, you know, carrots and sticks, similar with like the soda ban in New York. If you want people to stop drinking sugary beverages, put a tax on it. That's a stick. If you want people mm-hmm. to vote, give them the time off to vote, right? Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. the comp- no one's allowed to book meetings on election day, et cetera. I think systems yeah. have to change because yes, it everything is a choice, but it's I have more choice as being someone of privilege who's white collar, who can work behind a Zoom, blah, 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 versus someone who can't, who's a shift right. worker. Their company can't send that email out. You know, right. hey, just be on Slack while you're waiting in line. They don't work on Slack. I do. Right. You know? Right. Totally. And it's kind of a vicious cycle, too, because, well, the quick note I'll say about that is how that changes is policy, right? So all of our election laws are laws. And so it's policy change in the states that that make those changes. I mean, New York, people don't, I think, always realize this about New York, but until recently, New York was one of the worst states when it comes to voter access. And people Mm -hmm. don't think of that because it's a blue state, but it's New York didn't have very accessible absentee voting before. New York never had early voting. The first time I voted was in Texas. And for all the things that Texas makes hard to vote, they do have early voting. And so when I moved to New York, I remember just being really surprised, like, oh, you can't vote early here? That's so weird. I think we're in several vicious cycles. One of them is people don't vote. So politicians have to raise a ton of money 
I should say campaigns have to raise a ton of money to get people to vote. And then because they're raising so much money and campaigns are so expensive, that makes people apathetic and upset and turns people off and then they don't vote. And it's like this vicious cycle. There's also a vicious cycle, which is we shouted our reps. So to that point of like, does, you know, contacting your rep really matter if all you are is a tally mark at the end of the day? I would say yes. It does if you let them know that you're holding them accountable. Meaning all of these things that are shouting and going into a black hole Yeah, maybe that's not going to be as impactful as if when people actually are sending their reps their opinions, the rep knows, oh, this person's going to actually know how I voted. And they're potentially not not going to reelect me in the primary election if I don't listen. And so I think also the other thing that we need to do a better job of, well, there's a lot of things we need to do a better job of as a country, but like (laughs) when it comes to voting, but one of them is voting in primary elections because of gerrymandering, whoever wins the primary in most districts is going to be the elected official. And so I really like try to remind people and encourage people to vote in primaries also because let's see. So in 2017, Issue Voter did a tech nonprofit accelerator in San Francisco. And during that time I was there, I had a lot of people tell me And this is not to call out anyone, but this is just an example. Nancy Pelosi is not necessarily representing me as often as I thought she was, because there can be a tendency to just sit back and think everything's fine. Like if you're a Democrat and your rep's a Democrat and okay, I voted for them, they got reelected and everything's fine. I don't have to pay attention. And that's not true. No matter what party you are. I don't think that I think most people would say that they don't agree with either party 100 percent of the time. So that is also why I think engaging between elections is so important. I could talk about this forever. Well, I want to ask a a related question because it feels so overwhelming sometimes for people. And where I think you're in the minority is you are hyper-involved. And I want to steal a question that I asked a very kind of green advocate guest we had on the show. And it's, there's so many things and it's so overwhelming and we can't all lean in the way you have starting issue voter and doing the things you challenge people to do. With, with the issues and with their elected representatives. So my question is, if you could recommend like one or two small steps that people could do, because, you know, it is iterative. It's you take one to two steps. And wh- how would how should people get started? Not just with issue voter, but what are like one or two small changes in their approach to civic engagement that people can change to get us more in that direction? Yeah, I would kind of like challenge your premise saying that I'm someone that was very involved. I mean, yes, it's very involved to start an entire platform and like and like devote your life to it. But I would say that for people to engage, I know you said not to talk about issue voter, but I mean, I have, I, I almost have no, to. No, please do, point. please do, please do, I have to. <laughs> but, do, do, do. but like, because I mean, the whole point of issue voter is that it makes it easy for people who are busy. So, I mean, we <laughs> <laughs> like, we really take what would be 20 hours of someone's research and we enable them to get alerts before Congress is about to vote on an issue they care about. And I think getting the alert is really important because I don't expect people to be searching it every week. So you need that alert to even know it's happening in the first place. I mean, I'll give you an example. This year, we've mostly all probably heard about the CARES Act. There are over a thousand coronavirus-related bills introduced in Congress, and we are not hearing about those. So you need the alerts so that people even know there's something that they might want to send their opinion on in the first place. Then we have bullet points of what both sides are saying in the same place. And I think that's also really interesting as politics have become more and more polarized. And I think the silos we we are in with the media have become more prominent. So to find a nonpartisan resource with both sides in one place is more rare. And that's one of the things that people tell us they really appreciate about it. And then people, of course, can send their opinion to the staffer in charge of constituent contact. And I would argue that 
It is absolutely okay to talk to a staffer. I mean, I guess maybe people have this idea that they need to talk to the member of Congress or their rep, but it's really the staffers that are collecting all of these opinions, delivering weekly or biweekly reports in their offices and helping to direct policy decisions. And then finally, to close the loop, we automatically track the percentage of time reps vote how you would want them to vote throughout the year based on their voting record. And so anyone can use Issue Voter and see automatically, like like no work on their part, they just see this scorecard get populated that shows that their rep is representing them 20% of the time or 80% of the time or whatever that number is, which brings me back to elections and the importance of voting in primaries. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I hate to say this like on the air, but it's like, I knew this thing existed. And you literally just kind of called me out, right? Like as a, and I literally just set up my account. <laughs> like, because I was like, <laughs> I love oh, it. here's your zip code. What are the things? And I, I have this conversation with my sister, with other friends who might be less of all, less involved, less wonky on these things. They want to be right. But it's so much work. And so what I love about what the system you built is it's the UX of condensing the choice down to, to kind of a few actions. But I, I will answer your question more broadly about other ways people can get involved, because <laughs> I do want to mention <laughs> some other things. And it's really exciting because we've it actually gives me a chance to brag as well. Because, well, Issue Voter, because we're a nonprofit, we think about impact different than a startup would think about impact. You know, a startup is very mm-hmm. focused on like how many people are using the platform, how many opinions are getting sent to Congress. It would be really around those things. But for us, something that's really exciting is that we have seen that people using Issue Voter have been motivated to take other forms of civic action. And I think with civic engagement, there's like many different entry points and it doesn't really matter where you start. So for some people, it could be registering to vote. And we've seen that, you know, 59% of people using Issue Voter have said that it motivated them to register, to attend a town hall meeting, or to volunteer for an issue they care about. But for other people, those could be the starting points. They get really involved with an issue, and then they realize, oh, there's a policy side to this. We've also seen that 30% of people in the midterm election said they wouldn't have voted without it, that Issue Voter is what motivated them to vote in the midterms in the first place. But also, that is something where there's different entry points. An entry point um, might not even be I think a lot of times we think of an entry point as being registering to vote, but it might be um, going to a candidate forum. It might be talking to a friend who's really excited about a certain ballot measure. So I think there are lots of different entry points in how people get involved with policy or politics. And I think all of those are great things. So like they all kind of work together. So this year is going to be a really interesting and exciting year for us with the inauguration coming up and and everything else, what do you think, Maria, we're going to see happening in politics or just overall in civic engagement this year that we've never seen before? Well, I can say what I hope doesn't happen. I hope that people don't get lazy and sit back and think that they don't have to engage and protest and contact their members of Congress and be aware of what's going on. I hope that people maintain the level of passion for the change they want to see, because really, no matter what side you're on, that's still going to be really important. I also really hope that we can come up with better ways to, you know, depolarize a lot of what we're seeing. Because the truth is, there are so many policy issues that the majority of Americans actually do agree on, but often aren't even being moved forward because of politics. 
And just, it's so striking these days. You're either on my team or you're not, or, oh, that side, they don't know what they're talking about. My hope is results. Like, I want to see policy change. I want to see actual results. And I want people to not just sit back and think they don't have to pay attention. The resurgence of apathy, the thin silver lining over the last four years has been, and even the dumpster fire that this past year, 2020 was, is I think people woke up a little bit more. And the fear is, okay, we put Biden and Harris in office. Okay, I'm going to go back to my day job and forget about everything. Trust them to do it. And we know how fragile and tenuous these things are. When you take your eye off the wheel or whatever the metaphor is. Yeah. Um, I, and I also hope people can find like productive ways to channel their energy because there's there's a lot of anger out there, but that's not productive. Yeah. Yeah. Progress sometimes has to be a, a slog. It has to be wonky. But again, what I, again, I'm literally like pretty stoked about your platform because while we were talking, I just learned about this apprenticeship program and I was like, huh, is that something I care about? Should I? Like- Obama in the book tour, right? Something he said, I think, on Colbert was some of the most important stuff he did was the boring stuff. Like, you know, it wasn't a mission. It was like energy standards for refrigerators or something. And he's like, no one cared about it. No one covered the issue. But what we were able to do has like massive implications from a carbon imprint Mm -hmm. thing. So what your platform, I think, does, as I think I understand is, what are the things you care about? We're going to show you the things that are happening about the things you care about. And it's not going to be the sexy thing that makes the primetime news. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Exactly. I mean, there's only a few things that make the primetime news. There's not that many. Like this year, it was the CARES Act. A couple years ago, it was the healthcare bill. But Congress introduces over 15,000 bills each session. About 1,000 of them are voted on. And I don't expect anyone to know about all of them. And I don't expect anyone to track them themselves. (laughs) So... The other thing that I think is really cool, like if you're on Issue Voter and start um, reading some of the the content, is seeing the number of bills that really are bipartisan or even seeing bills where you have both Democrats and Republicans for the bill and you have both Democrats and Republicans against the bill. And I think that's also not what we're seeing in the news. Right. It's not this winner-take-all system. So, Maria, we've covered a lot of territory. (laughs) Sharon, what do you think? You think we're ready for speed round? I think you're ready for speed round, Maria. Great. What is one thing about you no one expects? I actually am very good about getting sleep. I consistently get like seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Wow. That's really admirable. Wow. That's not fair. I don't like yeah. you. I, I liked you for a bit. What's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? A really random one. One of my favorite movies is Contact based on the Carl Sagan book. Yeah, Jodie Foster. The thing that I love about that movie is she was basically willing to make herself look like a crazy person, but she had to tell the truth. And so that's something that I really admire about that character is that even though she was saying something where everyone was like, who is this lady? Like, she's crazy. She wouldn't lie about her experience. It's a really good movie. Yeah. What's your favorite mom dish? My mom hates cooking. But I am actually a very good cook, I will say. (laughs) So one of my favorite things that I can make, though, are like really, really, really good at chocolate chip cookies. What's your secret? Yeah, what's your secret ingredient? I, I, I I shouldn't say that. I'm a good recipe follower. So I found a really good recipe where you brown the butter and you include espresso. Oh, send that to me. And bread flour, a combination of bread flour and regular flour. Huh. Isn't all flour bread flour? (laughs) Just to be ignorant. (laughs) There's all-purpose flour and then there's bread flour. (laughs) Wow. All right. What's your least favorite food? I do not enjoy shellfish. All right. All kinds. Shrimp, lobster. 
Yep. Any, oh, I, wow. I've never liked shellfish. And my mom is from Maine and we would go there and have great access to lobster and I never liked it. <laughs> yeah, it's overrated. That's it. Oh, that's <laughs> a shame. <gasps> Who's someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I mean, there's like so many people coming to mind. <laughs> oh gosh. A podcast about what? <laughs> for the oh, Issue Voter podcast. For yes. the Issue Voter podcast. One or your best episode that's going to get so many more people to come to the Issue Voter platform. Donald Trump. Say more. Donald Trump is great at getting views and listens. Did you ever see the movie Frost Nixon? No. I'd highly recommend it. It's about a real story after Nixon was out of office. This British tabloid reporter, I want to say, got an interview with with Richard Nixon. Uh, And so they made a whole movie about the making of the interview. It's a real interview that exists, but it's a fantastic movie. And it's it's not just about getting the views. I mean, that's absolutely why he did it. But the things that were revealed in this kind of litigation, not dissimilar to like when Jon Stewart got Donald Rumsfeld on his show, you know? Yeah. It was a publicity event. It wasn't quite a prize fight, but it was something people wanted to see and people wanted to hear. And both people came to the show with their own agenda. Oh, I'll have to watch that. It's well... That's how Crooked Media started, right? They interviewed I am such a Obama. fan. They need to just buy our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they they interviewed Obama. And so that was their first episode. And so if my first episode can be Donald Trump, I would totally do it. That's amazing. So last question. What does being a modern minority mean for you? I think for me, it means being more aware of how other people have seen me throughout my whole life that I haven't even necessarily realized. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Well, Maria, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was This is like a fun, nerdy conversation. I appreciate <laughs> you entertaining it. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for this fun opportunity. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. This was a passion project, but I ended up staying and manning the kitchen with zero restaurant experience and zero kitchen experience. Waking up early, working in a 120 degree environment, a kitchen, cooking with walks. So just radiation in your face and your body. And I loved it. It was amazing. But it was enough at some point. That's the interesting thing. There's a point where The urge is scratched, and then you go back to something that provides more stability. And that has been my life. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place the elites in charge say everything's fine stop noticing but you know better and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos my patriot supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company americans trust to prepare go to mypatriotsupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. 
Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.